The following Sunday School session is part of our study of the I Am Statements of Jesus. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Uh, I have been tasked with setting the table for the study we're going to embark on on the I Am Statements of Jesus from the Gospel of, of John. And uh, I don't have a whole lot for you today, but what I do have, I think you will find interesting. I sure found it very, very interesting. So uh, I entitled this, What's in a Name? And uh, we name a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> and some of the names, uh, we name people, we name places, we name things. And a lot of times we the names will tell us a great deal about about the subject of the name. For instance, uh, hydrochloric acid. We know from its name that it is acidic. The substance is acidic. And we know that it is comprised of hydrogen and chlorine. And uh, that tells us quite a bit. In the case of Pope Pius X, uh, when a pope is installed, they take a name for themselves other than their given or birth name. They'll take on a name. Uh, And Pope Pius... Uh, who chose the name Pius, was the 10th pope in line to take that name. So he was known as Pope Pius X. And there was one pope out there that was the 23rd. So there was a whole lot of popes that had taken that name. The same with Richard. King Richard of England was the third Richard to be king in England. Um, A cardiologist uh, we know is someone who makes a study of the heart, because cardio from the Latin is uh, the heart. And that tells us a little bit about that person. Sometimes we name places, like 10th Avenue. That would tell us where we are in the city. We're 10 blocks from Main Street or 1st Street. Uh, Although in modern cities that have grown well beyond their original bounds, it might not be as useful (laughs) as it once was. Uh, Sometimes we name a place for a famous uh, uh, event, Uh, Trafalgar Square, for instance, is named after the famous sea battle off the Cape of Trafalgar, where Admiral Nelson defeated the French and Spanish fleets in the uh, Napoleonic War. It's a major square in London, and it's called Trafalgar Square. There's a statue of Nelson on an obelisk there. So names are useful to understand things. Sometimes a person's name can tell us a lot about the person. Now, we all know the name Rembrandt, a famous Dutch painter, but we didn't all know that his name was Rembrandt Hamanzoon van Rijn. Now, Judy can help us with this because that's Dutch. (laughs) But basically what it's telling us is that uh, Rembrandt was the son of Harman. Harman, uh, Hamanzoon means he was the son of Harman. So we know that his father's name was Harman. And von Wren tells us that he was born in a village on the Rhine River. So now about this Dutch painter, we know that his father's name, we know his parentage, and we know his origin, his place of origin. So it's very descriptive of that. Now what we're going to be talking about today is God's name. And God, when he chose a name for himself, he chose a name that would tell us a great deal about himself. In the Hebrew, in the Greek. And uh, we're going to be hanging around uh, Exodus 3, 14 and 15 today. This is where we will get these things. 
Before God chose a name for himself, he was known simply as El. El is a generic word for God. It has a meaning of might or strength or power. But this word might also have been used for a king or a magistrate or somebody of importance. So he was known as El. And the plural of El is Elohim. And this is the plural of the masculine singular. Now, many people believe that this uh, is uh, just noting the triune nature of our God. But others, especially those who deny the Trinity, they just see it as the royal we. (laughs) When kings spoke, they always said, we are not amused. (laughs) We this, we that. But uh, it it is interesting that it is um, in the plural. Another name that God was known by in the past is Adonai. That is a word meaning Lord. This was a word that was used to describe uh, the deity. Now, in the beginning, in Genesis, in the beginning, Elohim created. Now, it's interesting to me that that plural is there because we all know that they were all three in on, the, uh, in on it, right? And this name appears uh, some 2,300 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. After this, of course, God meets with Adam in the garden. It says that God walked in the garden in the cool of the day, and he spoke directly to Adam. Now, Adam's name meant man or mankind. Uh, it was pretty straightforward. But um, we don't know what language they spoke or if it was even necessary to speak. <laughs> There may have been just a cognizance there that was unnecessary to have a verbal conversation. Now, if walking in the garden in the cool of the day is a literal rather than a figurative, then we have to assume this was a pre-incarnate Christ that walked in the garden with Adam because we know that God the Father is a spirit and does not have a physical presence. So we could have the first incident of a pre-incarnate Christ or it could be figurative. Uh, uh, other places where walk is used, it's used in a, in a more figurative sense. Just something, something to think about there on the back burner. God, yes, God spoke with him in the garden. His name. Uh, God instructed Noah to build the ark in a voice that Noah heard. Now, Noah's name meant rest. Interesting. Um, after the fall in the garden... Uh, Man could not speak directly to God anymore. Although, as soon as I typed this out, it struck me that if you had lived during the 30-some years that Christ walked upon the earth, you could have spoken directly to God. And God, in fact, spoke directly to many people during that time. And it's just, just, I just was overwhelmed by that thought. It was... We think of, oh, if I'd only lived in the time of Christ and I could have met Christ, you know. But you, not only were you meeting Christ, you were meeting God bodily, in all of the Godhead bodily. I mean, it just, it's, it's awesome. Absolutely awesome. Why do you say that they could not speak to God? Where, what is the basis for that? Believe? Not speak to God? Oh. They could not speak to God. You mean after, after the fall? fall. Yes. Uh, certainly they could speak to God, but they did, they did not have a direct conversation as it's described in the garden. There was a distance. Okay. There was always a distance yes. after that. 
So and they have a relationship in the garden that ended. You yes. See that happening. Yeah, that's that's what I meant to. Abraham. Yeah, that's what I meant to okay. imply. Got it. Uh, and and yet, uh, as I said, during the time that Christ walked upon the earth, it was quite possible to speak to God. When God called Abram, he began to hint at a name. In Genesis 15, it says, The word of the Lord, Adonai, came to uh, Abram in a vision, saying, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. So God's beginning to form this now. Uh, A couple of verses later, he says to him, I am the Lord, Adonai, that brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees to give you this uh, land to inherit. Right? A couple of chapters later, he says, I am the Almighty God, El Shaddai, walk before me. Now, in this case, walk is used in a more figurative sense. It means to conduct your life in a quorum deo, living before God, right? So uh, walk isn't always a literal walk. Uh, but El Shaddai is another name that was given uh, for God. Now, this is before God chooses the name that he will be known by. So these names were names that men employed to try to explain the Godhead. Now in Exodus, we get to Exodus and we get to Moses. He tells Moses, I appeared to uh, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob by the name of El Shaddai. But then he goes on to tell Moses, by my name, they did not know me. So what he's saying there is that up until this point, he has not stated his name clearly and plainly. They have uh, not invented necessarily, but they have used words to describe God or to name God that were not the ones that he particularly chose. Now Moses, William kind of brought us up to speed on Moses. We all know these stories from our childhood, really. Moses was born in the latter part of the captivity of Israel in Egypt. And and, uh, it was at a time when the Pharaoh was so concerned about the growth of the Jews within his country that he had instructed the midwives to smother the male children of Israel uh, at birth. And uh, Moses' mother saved his life by placing him in a basket and setting him afloat on the Nile River, as you'll recall. And God directed that basket to the steps of the palace He was taken in by the daughter of Pharaoh and raised in her household as a prince in Egypt, which made him second only to Pharaoh. As the male prince, he was second in line only to Pharaoh himself. (coughs) Well, as he grew, I think William was telling us, as he grew into a man, he began to learn more and more about his Hebrew heritage. And one day when he was walking abroad, he saw an Egyptian overseer abusing a Hebrew slave. And he rose up and he killed the Egyptian. And then as William was telling us, he, was, he exiled himself into the desert, basically. So if we pick up at that point, uh, he found his way into the wilderness of Midian. There he took a wife. He raised two sons. This is 40 years later now of his exile in Midian. And he is tending the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro, near Mount Horeb. And at this point, a bush near him bursts into flame. And we see this. It says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. The bush was burning, 
but it was not consumed. Now I'm going to stop here for a minute because I'm fascinated by this image. The image of the burning bush. It's become a, a symbol in Christianity that's widely used. You may see it on signs as you drive by churches, particularly Presbyterian churches. Where did this really, obviously it comes from the scriptures right here, but its first use really as a Christian symbol was with the Huguenots. The Huguenots in France, they were Protestant Christians. They lived in France. This would have been in the 16th century, the 1500s, during the Reformation. And uh, they had come together in a synod, and their intention was to draft letters to the other princes of Protestant nations, England, Scotland, the Netherlands, Scandinavia. Um, and they, uh, they were going to send these letters because they were asking for relief. They were under severe persecution by the, a succession of kings in France. Uh, and they were asking for help from their Christian brothers, right? Well, at this synod, they decided we need to have a symbol to put on our documents that will give them an authority, an authenticity, to let them know that we're speaking for the Reformed Church in France. And they chose this symbol, the burning bush. And they wrote on it, Flegor non consumar, I burn, I am not consumed. And this, everybody that I read, thinks came from Calvin himself. Calvin, in his commentary on the book of Acts, uh, in the book of Acts, there is a reference to Moses and the bush and this occurrence. And John Calvin interpreted the image to be the church on earth. He said the church is in constant turmoil, and yet it's sustained by the Holy Spirit. So he said, in reality, it seems that the church is always burning, but it's never consumed because God preserves it. And he made this comment, apparently, in his commentary on the book of Acts. And they took this and chose that to be their symbol. And I, like I said, you'll see it on many places today. Uh, it's, it's in the, uh, I guess it's in the, the Reformation uh, Bible, the Reform Bible, and it's, in, it's on many uh, uh, Presbyterian churches. My wife and I were involved in a church planning effort for the Free Presbyterian Church. Um, and their symbol, they added a Latin phrase, Arden sed verens, burning yet thriving. Hmm. But it was the same basic symbol. Anyway, to get back to where we, got, where we were. <laughs> God speaks to Moses out of this bush. And he says to him, Moses, go back to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and tell him to let the people of Israel leave his country. This is NLT. That's why it's so familiar. Well, you, you remember Moses was a bit timid about this. He says, God, who am I to go before Pharaoh? Well, if you stop and think about it, who better to go before Pharaoh? Here's the prince of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, right? Well, I'm sure Moses was thinking, if I go back there, there's certainly going to be some severe charges and penalties brought against me. So he's a bit timid. But... God convinces him that he's to go. And he convinces him by saying, I'm going with you. I'm going to be with you in this. And uh, so Moses then says to him, okay, so if I come to this people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, uh, this is the way he identified himself uh, to, to uh, uh, Moses. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he says, if I go and tell them this, and they're going to ask me, what's his name? What shall I tell them? 
And this is a leading question from Moses. And here's where we get the name. I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. We find this in Exodus 3.14. And he goes on to say, this is my name forever. And thus I am to remember throughout generations. So we, have established, we establish at this point a name. MacArthur tries to help us out a little bit with this. He says, I am who I am means I am the one who is and will be. Uh, and then he's, I, I'm ha- somebody read that for me, the, the rest of that. significance in relation to God of your fathers is immediately discernible. He's the same God throughout the ages, MacArthur. Yeah. MacArthur is, is, is getting us to the point where there's an eternality, eternality in, included in this name. Not only the God who is now, but the God who always has been. And, and we, this is getting us a little closer, but we're not even, we're not there. <laughs> we're not there. We've got a ways to go. Because it means so much more than it seems to mean on its surface. Now, the prob- one of the problems, the first problem we run into in trying to understand the name of God is that Old Testament Hebrew has no vowels. When it's written out, it's all consonants. There's no vowels in it. So pronunciation comes from little punctuation marks and things like that. Um, So in the original, God's name translates to YHWH. And this is called the tetragrammaton. It just means there's four letters. It's Yod, He, Wa, He repeated again. And this name appears 6,800 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. But What was it again? Huh? What was the pronunciation? Well, the pronunci- that, I'm going to get to that here in a minute. Nobody knows how it was pronounced. How did you say the letters? How did you say the letters? Oh, Yod. That's the letter. These are Hebrew letters. Yod? Yod, he, wa, and he. But no vowels to give you a clue as to how to put them together, right? So this is the first thing we come up against is is the language barrier, basically. Jim, it, you said it's, it's 6,800 times the Old Testament. How is it usually translated? How do they translate it? They translate it, most of the English translations translate it Lord okay. in all caps. All right, in all caps, got it. Right. Adonai is another one that you'll find in there. I'm going to give some other names that have been used as well. This is the Hebrew. It's from the verb to be, but it's the third person masculine. So we say he is. Now, the Masoretic texts, this was a group of Hebrews, strict sect of of Jews who translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. This happened in the 7th century A.D., they added vowels from Elohim and Adonai to give us Yahweh. That's how we got Yahweh in the 7th century from the Masoretes. Scholars have no way to know how it was originally pronounced. And they're not even sure if it has two or three syllables. <laughs> so, but that's a good thing. Because the name of God was considered to be so holy that Orthodox Jews refused to speak it out loud. They would say instead, Hashem, the name, or Adonai, Lord. And that's the way it's translated in many of our modern translations. Now, you'll also remember that the scribes, when they would come to write this name, when they were copying the scrolls, they would set down the pen, leave the desk, 
wash themselves, change their garments, get a new pen, come back, and write the name. That's how serious a business this was. And the reasoning for that was Leviticus 24. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Well, nobody wanted to do that. And fortunately, it's hard for us to do that because we don't know how it's pronounced. So God built in a bit of a protection for us in, in that regard. So some of the other names that have been employed to, to uh, replace the name, Kyrios. Now, Kyrios is a Greek word for Lord. It's the equivalent of Adonai. This appears 7,000 times in the Septuagint and 740 times in the Greek New Testament. So this is a name that was much used uh, to replace Yahweh. Jehovah. Now we use Jehovah a lot, and this it comes to us a lot. But Jehovah is not the name that God revealed. Jehovah is a Latinization of Yahweh. In the Latin alphabet, there's no Y. So they substituted a J. This name first appears in Tyndale's translation of Exodus 6.3. That's in the 16th century. It's also in the Geneva Bible, and it's 7,000 times in the KJV, which came from the Greek, a Greek text, right? So anytime you see the J, the Romans have been at it because they didn't have a Y. So it became J. Uh, this is very interesting to me. Our English word God that we use and is in all the translations, this English word first came into use from, a ger from the German, Gudan, and then in modern German, it's Gott. And this was in a, a codex from the 6th century, the Codex, uh, codex Argenteus. And this was four Gospels translated into Gothic by uh, Bishop Wilfula. And that's how God, the word God, came into our English usage. Right. Uh, while we're on the etymological kick, let's go to Jesus. There's that J again, right? The Romans called him Jesus. In Latin, but the Greeks called him Jesus. And Jesus, the Greeks were taking a transliteration from the Hebrew, which was Yahshua, or Yehashua, and it means God is salvation. Uh, so all of these names have been employed at some point or, or another. Now, if we're beginning to worry a little bit about our Bible because all of these changes, all of these people, so much of this happens so much afterwards. Take no worry. <laughs> the, uh, the Septuagint, which we'll talk about here, the Septuagint, the Masoretic texts are about a thousand years apart almost. And they are in almost perfect agreement. Disagreements come in, in word order sometimes or spellings or punctuation, but not in essence. So a thousand years pass, it's still intact. And then when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 40s, 1940s, they had Masoretic texts in them and they were uh, in agreement with the others. So God has preserved his word through all the ages, even though men have stumbled around with certain things. Uh, it is still a very sure thing. Now, the next problem, besides the no vowels, the next problem we have is just understanding uh, God explained the meaning of his name by placing it in parallel to the Hebrew verb, I am. There's a big difference here, and we'll talk about that now. 
mis, uh, misreading I am or the, even the echo ami that we get in the Greek. Confusion arises about the meaning of God's name, Yahweh, I am, when we read it in English. Because in English, being verbs, am, is, are, or he is, she will be, they merely state the subject's existence. They exist. I exist. But God is saying so much more than that. The Hebrew being verb, I don't know, is not the same as the Greek ami, to be, mere existence per se. To the Hebrew, to be is not just to exist, but to be active, to express oneself in active being. In the name Yahweh, God uh, made himself known as a present, uh, as being present with and for his people. So we have, a, we have a poor understanding of the Hebrew sense of I am when we only use our English I am uh, to, to guide us there. We need to dig in much deeper as some of these folks, uh, as some of these folks have done. Uh, now, the, we've been talking about the Septuagint. The Septuagint are some of the oldest manuscripts in existence. This was a translation by Jews into Greek uh, of the Hebrew Old Testament. And this was done uh, beginning in the 3rd century B.C., so 300 years or so before, before Christ. This was the Bible that was used by Jews and early Christians. But the Septuagint did not translate the second I am as echo ami, but rather as oan, the one who is. And that's a telling a telling thing right there. So we might say, oh, the biblical Hebrew, be, uh, in biblical Hebrew, the being root verb haya conveys not just existence, but manifest existence. It indicates the appearance, the presence, the standing of a thing. Now, Pastor Ortland tries to help us with that. He says, God is not simply asserting his existence. He is declaring, uh, he is declaring? Yeah, his involvement. His involvement. I am with you, and nothing will ever change that about me. It's just who I am. So there's a lot more than I am being said when God says, I am that I am. Hmm. Uh, We might say, I am the being one. Say to the children of Israel, the being one has sent me to you. Hmm. That is a possible way to, to translate it. Now, in the Targum, we talked about Targum a couple of years ago when we were studying the Holy Spirit. Targum are basically commentaries, like we would look into Spurgeon or Calvin or some of the old Puritans or MacArthur or these guys. They write commentaries on Bible passages. Well, the Targum were commentaries on the Old Testament by uh, prominent rabbis. And Jonathan was one of the most famous ones. Uh, So the Targum of Jonathan says, I am he that... Uh, that is and that shall be. Well, he's helping us get along there a little bit. One of the other Targums says, he who makes that which has been made. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, that helps us a little bit too. But all of these are still kind of falling short of giving us the whole truth and nothing but the truth, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to go to Gil. I have to apologize to John because I bagged on him the last time (laughs) in my last lesson. He seemed to be getting off the rails a little bit. But here he's, he's back. And uh, somebody w- want to read Gil for me? I am that I am. 
This signifies the real being of God, his self-existence, and that he is the being of beings. It also denotes his eternal eternity and immutability and his consistency of faithfulness and fulfilling his promises, for it includes all time, past, present, and to come. And the sense is not only what I am at present, but I am what I have been, and I am, and I am what I shall be, and shall be what I am. Mm. Now there you get your tongue all twisted up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah Gil is taking us around and, and around here. Uh, and I, I, he's helping, but he's also making this maybe more complicated. And I think the Amplified Bible must have read Gil, because the Amplified Bible has it this way. I am who I am, and what I am, and I will be what I will be. <laughs> can you, you can hear the stumbling here, can't you? The stuttering. Uh, it's kind of crazy. But when God identified himself as I am that I am, he was saying that no matter when or where, he is there. And he said, he says, said clearly in Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Mm. And that kind of brings us down. And then uh, this one... I. I love John Calvin. Remember I said in my other lesson, I think I'd rather have been in John Calvin's church than John Gill's church. Calvin just sets, sets our feet back on the ground. Tell him the one who simply and absolutely is has sent you. Right? Tell them that the essential thing about me is that I am. The one who never had a beginning, but always, uh, always was, and is, and will be. It defines all things. He simply and absolutely is. <laughs> I like John. He cuts through the nonsense and gets us there, right? Okay. All of these variations, all of these people who have tried to help us, they're helping us expand what we understand about what God meant when he told Moses what his name would be. I think we're still short of the whole thing, but this has all helped us out quite a bit. Today, in our world, unfortunately... Many, many people have claimed the divine I am for themselves. And they would be in complete agreement with William Henley's poem, Invictus. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scrolls. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Oh, Mr. Henley. I fear that he is a much sadder and wiser man today. But that is the attitude of many of the folks around us, in our, in our families, in our workplaces, in the, in the world around us. Uh, they think they're pretty much in charge. But the reality of it is, God is the only one who can accurately describe himself as I am. For the rest of us, I am is a false claim to self-sufficiency. We are not eternally constant or ever-present. Our only hope is to abandon claims of our own sovereignty and sufficiency and cast ourselves upon the mercy of I am. Very true. Now, in the weeks to come, we are going to embark upon the I am statements of Jesus. And here... He seems to be claiming the divine I am for himself. 
And this is not thievery or robbery or misplaced. In Philippians, we understand that he who being in the form thought it not robbery to be equal. As the second person of the Godhead, he has every right to declare himself as I am. And we will be exploring that as we go along in the weeks to come. As a close, I just say to you, he simply and absolutely is. I was, I was thinking about this this weekend, thinking about how people come up with all sorts of schemes to say how we got here, what we're experiencing. I mean, there's these people out there right now that are saying it's all a big AI thing. I mean, people saying, yes, it's a, a it's like the Matrix. It's a fig, figment of somebody's <laughs> imagination. But all of them go back circularly to no answer to how it started. Oh, yeah. Not this one. This answer answers that completely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, Bill. Um, I noticed all those verses I am and Jesus is all in John. I should know the answer to this question. Is that the only, we don't find I am in the other three Gospels? Oh, yeah. Probably so. But the, they, they are they're more concisely stated here okay. together in this place. John's Gospel is the one that is more to deal with the deity of Christ. And uh, so we we would expect to find them there. Thank you for joining us for this Sunday School session on the I Am Statements of Jesus. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.